what you usually see when there is some kind of recession is that it's not only a recession of money, it's often also a recession of mind because people get stressed about situation and uh, efficiency is a nice term for it. And making things faster is what they usually try to do. That also means that they might be actually focusing too much on just building things and not really thinking about what they are building. And we write about this at the end of the book, and I think it was your idea, Martin. So what's the least that you could do with this book? It's just looking at the framework, right? To print it out, put it in front of your laptop or in a workshop to see how we've done some exploration in terms of problems, right? From a user's perspective, business perspective, feasibility, and have you progressed through the framework? Welcome to Product with Benash. I'm Axel, and in this show, I talk to product leaders and experienced operators across Europe and beyond. Together, we'll learn about their craft, how they build successful products, and unpack the frameworks and secrets they've used in delivering growth for their businesses. Today, I'm super excited to welcome Martin Christensen, who's currently Product Discovery Coach, and Marcus Kastenfors, partner at Crisp, both co-authors of Holistic Product Discovery, a guide for professionals who want to improve their practice of product discovery. Hi, Martin. Hi, Marcus. How are you guys today? Hello, hello. Hi, I'm doing great. <laughs> yeah, good, so, yeah, so you're both calling from Stockholm, I think, for Marcus. Martin, you're based in Stockholm as well? Yes. Brilliant. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while now because you guys have released this guide, this a handbook for people who are looking to improve their practice of product discovery, like I mentioned in the intro. So before we go into the details of what's involved in the guide, what are some of the great tips you're sharing in there, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourselves, so your background, and how did you come around to writing this book? All right, I can start. I have been a practicing UX researcher and designer for quite many years. Had the opportunity to work in pretty agile settings, which have made me focus quite a lot on collaboration and seeing different perspectives of things. So way back, I think 13 years ago or something, that was part of something called the balanced team approach which is basically what Teresa Torres calls product trios today, with looking at a little bit more perspectives on discovery than yeah, only in the business side or maybe only the user side, combining them together. So that's where it started for me. And then along the way, I got to know Marcus. Okay. It sounds like it's a, it's a great segue into Marcus's origin story now. Yeah, I think Martin and I met for the first time 10 years ago or something like that. Martin, Martin was an organizer of, of a UX conference called UX Open, which was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And it was $100 and it was all these lightning talks by smart people around Sweden in relating to UX design. And uh, I was a UX designer at the time and I grew up to be a design leader at various companies and then transitioned into consulting. And one of my passions, just like Martin, is collaboration. Right. And to see the magic that happens when you put smart people in the room and to focus on customer problems, customer insights, talking to customers and boiling things down. What I, why I wake up in the morning is to see that pupils dilating in eyes of team members and customers when you're working on the right stuff. And just you have that feeling of we know what's going on. We trust each other. 
we're doing good work together and we're bringing stuff to life. And that's hard. That's really hard stuff. It's easy to talk about. There are so many thought leaders out there who are giving you simple tips, but like the craft being in it is extremely difficult and it's a craft that you need to master and it takes time. The ambition with this book that we brought to life is to help along that way to, to progress in, in your journey of becoming a better craftsperson in, in, in relation to, to product discovery. That resonates a lot. I think talking to a number of product leaders across Europe and beyond, most people, even if they've had 20 years of practice in this craft, I think will recognize that they're still learning, right? Mm. There's this continuous evolution of the craft itself. Technology is evolving. So that's one side of the story. On the other side of the story, there are so many new people entering this job day after day. And I had a super interesting conversation with a CPO from a unicorn company last week. And she was telling me how most people, after they've done this job, like first time product manager job after 18 months, want to get promoted. It's crazy. Uh, yeah. Crazy. <laughs> so it's really, I think it's important to talk about the reality of this job, right? Which yeah. is... 20 years in, you'll still be learning and you might not be like a CPO in a company. You might maybe be like yeah. a lead PO or a principal product manager, but the reality, something you, you mentioned really resonates with me is it's grueling, right? It's a very tough job. And I think people like you who are trying to formalize things and bringing some structure to the practice through books like Holistic Discovery, doing a great job because one of the things I recognize is People that are starting the role, like you mentioned in what Martin earlier was talking about, balanced teams. So people who are starting to figure out the tenets of collaboration and how to build products in a sustainable way, they need like an entry point into the practice, specifically yes. around even harder things like product discovery. So I'm curious to dive into what are some of the feedback you've received when launching the book? What are some of the people reading the book telling you about how it's helped them evolve their practice? We started actually before the book, because we have built the book iteratively and incrementally along the way. But we as a product, just like a product. Just a product, yeah. With our own dog have, food. Yeah, but we started out with the framework, with the, the meat of the book, basically. And we've been using that framework in different places. And that's where we've gotten the most feedback, I think, from giving a structure, but not giving a recipe for success because it's, everything's contextual, but you would need a structure and there is so much chaotic uh, product management going on out there. Yeah. So this is giving a structure and then uh, helping along the way. And the idea with the framework that we have is to give many perspectives, many aspects of it that we can use. And that's where at least I have gotten quite a lot of feedback that, oh, you can see it from that perspective. Oh, no, I didn't think about that before. Ah, I need to do this part here more. I realize that now. For instance, focusing more on problem space and not just coming up with solutions that are fun to build, but actually worthy of building, Yeah, etc. So that's the kind of feedback we got, we've gotten along the way, I think. Yeah. We talk about the framework being a guardrail something to steer you in the right direction, but it doesn't provide you all the answers. It's still a hard job to do product discovery. And I kind of want to transition to this 
what we see a lot in terms of recommendations for junior product developers is specific recipes, like follow these steps and then you will do product discovery. And there's something positive to that, but there's also something negative to that, right? Because you need to test and learn and try new things, try new techniques. But the negative side is that you can say that if you just do these things, you will do product discovery well, or whatever you want to call it, right? And the ambition with the book is to not provide this perfect recipe. It's to provide this blank canvas, but give you some examples on how you can use the framework. So we try to marry both worlds, right? <laughs> Still be broad strokes, but then to give specific kind of tactics to pro junior product developers. This makes a lot of sense. I think when Martin was saying earlier around how contextual a lot of this is and how if you take that consideration on one hand and on the other side, think about the number of people out there who are looking for a recipe, like, like this silver bullet that's going to just going to solve all their problems. Bringing these two worlds together is quite a challenge. The way mm -hmm. I like to look at this is I look at people posting stuff on LinkedIn, right? So mm. if you look at post engagement across a number, like a variety of posts, the posts that work best are posts where people are sharing a template for something, right? Yes. Come, drop a comment here and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you download this template on how to frame your discovery or whatever. What this tells me is that people like a good framework, right? People like something that is packaged off the shelf, easy to read, easy to apply. But at the same time, I can't help but also recognize exactly what you were saying, Marcus, the potential negative aspects of this, a bit of a double-edged sword, right? So yes. on the other side, you are creating this illusion that if people potentially download this template and just apply it, our problems are magically going to solve themselves. And yeah. I think It all goes back again to this, the craftsmanship around product management and the yes. realization that at the end of the day, most of the people doing this are going to do half of it wrong. And mm -hmm. this is how they're going to learn. So I really like this idea of the guardrails, this idea of structure, but not a recipe for success. What are some of the kind of other learnings you've built into the book itself and some of the stuff you're trying to convey through the book. To build on what you just said, one of the things is also giving the why. I would probably actually recommend to, if you're new at this, you can get whatever flavor of recipe that's popular right now in one book, and then you get our book. And our book will, with the framework, will explain a little bit why uh, that recipe came to be in the other book or whatever it might be. And you can also tweak it with our book and get maybe better insights, changing things around. So that, and that's a lot what we wrote for. That was our yep. kind of target uh, to make it very tweakable. Yeah. That's it definitely one thing. Might sound pretentious, but it's a sense-making tool. Where are you in product discovery? What do we need to do? So that's the ambition with the framework. And something I kind of want to touch upon relating to what you talked about, Axel, is I think I learned from you, Martin, or someone else at Crisp, and it comes from Jeff Patton, if I'm not mistaken, the 
the end it comes from the chain of thought leaders before that but it's the concept of shu hari or maybe it wasn't chef Patton, but you no, can correct no. me more <laughs> way, way further than that yeah way further further. Back. so <laughs> everything builds in our line of business but the shu hari from aikido and i'll toss that over to you martin because i think you'll do a better job of explaining that all right, I'll try. So it's stages of learning, basically, and how you can use the knowledge you have. In the beginning, you're in a shoe setting. I don't know what it means in Japanese, and I probably pronounce it wrong as well. But what it means in, for us in English is that when we are beginners, we need something to hold on to, something structured to, to work from. And we learn the moves slowly and and thoroughly and we follow the book as as you say in the ha level when you're there you've understood a little bit more about why you're doing things and maybe this is exactly where a book comes in helping with the ha level and to be able to tweak things and be able to contextualize etc you still might be following the structure but you make it your own in some sense Re-level is more expert level. It doesn't look as if you have a structure. It, you're just principle-led, basically. And from the outside, if you try to mimic that, people usually misunderstand everything, what you're doing. So you need to take this. It's a progression. You, you, everyone goes from shu into ha, and then maybe into re, yeah. if they are. If you're really the move in the industry for many years. Yes, yeah. sorry, Marcus. No, I would just jump in. Uh, something that we talk about is an 80s movies reference in the, when we do training. Karate Kid, remember that movie? I knew this was coming. I could see this <laughs> reference coming like miles <laughs> right. away. Yeah. Karate Kid, there was a new version maybe five or 10 years ago with Will Smith's son, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, this, so in the beginning of the journey of this kid wanting to learn karate, they, they find a sensei, somebody who knows this, right? who knows karate intimately. And the first thing that Danielson in the 80s movie that he has to do is to wax on and wax off and waxing a car. Right? And then he understands after using these practices that, oh, okay, it's actually something from karate, right? And it's this kind of same thinking relating to what Morgan talked about is that in product discovery, you need to perhaps do things by the book in the beginning to understand like what's the purpose of this technique. And then as you apply these techniques, you become better and better. You tweak the techniques. And then when you've worked five, 10, 15 years in, in the craft, you forget about the fundamentals. It's just natural to you to apply these product discovery techniques. And that's user G research or story mapping or design sprints. So it, it, you progress in, in your professional career in that way. What I'm taking from part of this conversation is that I think at first there's, there are a lot of people that I've lost really don't really know from what end to like address this problem. And this is where they probably need a recipe, right? They need something that is more than structure. They actually need like a guy that says, do this and then do that and then see what happens. And then the next stage from that is you're already starting to learn and you're figuring out that you're almost figuring out which parts of the recipe you don't want to use anymore, probably. Mm, and, exactly. then, and then the third stage is you actually been doing it so much and probably so well that you can actually boil down the recipe down to five or four ingredients and 
Now you just know how to apply these ingredients and build other things just using these like minimum ingredients, which Martin, before you were talking about principles. So I also like first principle thinking. So I think through time, a lot of this practice, whether this in discovery or not, actually, it's, I think it's applicable to all of product, probably to everything in life, to be fair. You get this ability to recognize some of the core principles or things that are that just apply as you know rules across a number of things and again this comes from experience like i you know how it always goes back to the job of product management is a craft and the mastery of this craft is going to take a lot of time right it's just yeah. not going to happen in a couple of years so thanks for sharing that that was super insightful the way we built up the book, from my perspective at least, is that to give the best possible uh, shortcut, basically, into a high level or more even a principle-focused uh, level of working. And one thing that I'm pretty proud of that wouldn't have come about if it wasn't for Marcus is that the first part of the book where we try to give some good examples of what is good product practices and what are bad product practices to be able to discern what if you're doing right now is good or bad, where it might lead, because you might not see that as a more junior product manager. So that part, I'm, I think that's, I'm really proud of that part as well. And, and that one is what I've gotten feedback from many of my clients that's, oh, all right, is that how it is? then you give them the first step there in, in some sense. Yeah, it provides yeah. like a standard, right? I think a lot, of, yeah. a lot of companies who are doing product just are not clear on what good product looks like. So it's helpful to have the benchmark and to look at something and say, okay, I know how I compare with this level of practice and I have an idea of some of the steps I can take to reach that level, the desired level of practice. So that's always helpful. Marcus, what has been your... I like the fact that Martin has talked about part of the book he's most proud of. What is the, what is your part of the book that you're most proud of? I think we, that we got it done. That's good. That's <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah. It's been an ongoing journey for three years to bring this product to, to, to life. And we used this iterative and incremental approach. So the first version that we published was pretty crappy. <laughs> And it, it was 35, 40 pages or something like that. But we we had the guts to, to publish it and to expose our work and to get critiqued. And we got critiqued a lot and it made the book stronger. And we sent the book maybe a year and a half later to, to Marty Kagan and he tore the book apart. He gave us six pages of feedback and basically said some pr pretty harsh things in terms of where we're coming from. But it took the book to another level. We're extremely grateful for Marty for taking the time to, to write such a valuable feedback. And there's been plenty of others who've been, who've been challenging us in terms of our thinking, our concepts, also on the wording level. So we, we tried to address all that feedback and the book is stronger as a result, in our opinion. That's really helpful. I know. Marty likes to be thorough when he's providing feedback, which is very, which is very always thorough. a good thing. Yeah. If you're ready to hear it, I think it's a good thing. No, he wrote before, I'm going to give you feedback, but it might not be something that you like. Mm. Do, you, do you still want to go down this route? 
And we said, yes, we want to get your feedback. Thanks for sharing. A couple of questions now. I'm going to look at this from the audience's perspective, right? So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions just to figure out how can this book like concretely help based on different things you might be doing as a product manager and maybe not as a product manager, actually, the other roles we talked about, the balance team earlier on. So if, let's say, I'm a product manager in an early stage company, I have got like maybe 18 months to two years experience doing product. I've just been doing like a scrappy job of talking to people. I won't even say user interviews, but just talking to people. Which is how is this? How is this book? Nothing. Yeah, how is this book gonna help me? In it, at first, it's definitely gonna help you to see that there are more things than just talking to people. That it's that there are other perspectives that will require you to start talking to other people in the company. So, for instance, if you have a very strong user focus to start with, or very strong, if you think that that is discovery, that we're gonna do user research, and then. It, this book will probably open your mind to, oh, we, we also need to make sure that we have a business goal to follow in a good way. And we also need to make sure that it's actually feasible to build this and sustainable the end from a technical perspective and even a capability perspective. And we even speak a little bit about the ethical aspects of it. And there are, of course, more perspectives, but it will probably broaden your mind a bit and make you realize that you have more things to do. That's not just doing something better, but doing other things as well. Yeah. We won't take responsibility in this book. We, we give some examples on things you can do if you're talking to, to people at the moment, for instance, like better user interviews, etc. But they are just examples. What we do say is that you should not only focus on that, you should also take in other perspectives. Like interviewing stakeholders or understanding the technical space that the developers have. So we don't create something in our minds that is hmm. actually not buildable. And we write about this at the end of the book. And I think it was your idea, Martin. What's the least that you could do with this book when applying the thinking from the book? And, and it's just looking at the framework, right? To print it out, put it in front of your laptop or in a workshop to see have we done some exploration in terms of problems, right? From a user's perspective, business perspective, feasibility, and have you progressed through the framework? Um, it doesn't need, it doesn't need to mean that you have done everything, filled in all the blanks, but just to glance at it, to see, have you done some of the work that's necessary to build the right thing. And so that, that could be a useful first step, just to print it out, show it to the team. Yeah, that's concrete. One, one very big aspect of product discovery is to mitigate the risk of building the wrong thing. So having this, building on what Marcus has said, having this framework to just look at might be enough for you to start thinking, oh, I'm taking a big risk here. I need to do something else. Or I'm getting too narrow-minded. Now I've done user experience methods very good, but it won't bring any money into the company, for instance. And we can zoom in on risk because that's a key theme in the book when it comes to product discovery in general, right? And something that we've applied is a way of kind of mapping risks. And we talk about that in the book. 
we have another article that we can share to the audience as well when it comes to running and facilitating a workshop relating to getting the risks in front of everybody. And it, it, the thinking comes from Shreyash Doshi, who was an early PM at Stripe. He's a very notable thinker in the product space. And he talks about the concept of pre-mortems, right? That they, you should anticipate what could go wrong in, in discovery. And that's tackling risks up front. Something that Marty Kagan preaches a lot, right? Which we are believe in strongly. And uh, yes, it's, so the, the key thing that you could do, that product manager with a year and a half's experience working at a startup or scale-up, that could be a... a the key activity to apply this thinking from a holistic perspective to, to surface risks as a team and then talk about how you're going to mitigate them. What are the product discovery techniques that we're going to apply to address these risks? And that could be user research, stakeholder mapping, stakeholder interviews, market research, etc. But to just facilitate that workshop could be highly useful in that context. Do you agree, Mark? Yeah, and you're saying team and you're saying workshop, and that's also a key principle in this. We will lower the risk if we bring in other brains. The right people, uh, yeah. The right people into this. We need diversity on so many levels. If it's not only diversity on that, we need people that, who understands business versus people who understands users, who mm. understands tech, etc. But also, of course, diversity on all the other levels yeah. that we talk about. Uh, yes. And that's why I also really appreciate the design sprint methodology. If you don't use it, buy the book. We can uh, double click. So many learnings, like yeah. from yeah, from this, it's crazy. Yeah. So the design sprint method is about bringing people together, right? It's a diverse team, a balanced team. And what's really useful with design sprint is that you're focusing, right, a week's time on on doing discovery. And the end result is a prototype that you validated on users and customers. And the kind of anti-pattern that we see when it comes to product discovery in, in teams, especially in the scenario you talked about, the junior product manager, is that you do some discovery in, in pockets, right? You meet some customers and then you talk to stakeholders and then the UX designer does his or her thing. And then you, you don't create alignment. And alignment is so important in product discovery that we're focusing on the right problem and then we're creating the right solution. And if you don't have these smart people in the room together to create that alignment, you're going to end up failing because somebody's going to pop up downstream or a customer is going to be like, but wait a minute, <laughs> this is not what I want. Or yeah, so that's a great, great con condensed product discovery. And you can call it the discovery sprint, right? To spend a week together with a diverse team. I've got a bunch of other questions now because you've just opened up the conversation. There's a couple of things I want to touch on. We obviously witnessing or have been witnessing an economic downturn for a while now. And a lot of tech companies are focusing on efficiency, right? Like how are my teams going to be more efficient at product? I've got to do more with less. Mm. And I think product discovery has a lot to do in that. So the first thing I want to ask is how are you seeing, are you seeing in the first place, companies that are really trying to focus on efficiency, profitability, et cetera, how are they applying some of the great principles from the book in, into what they're doing? I can tackle that question, but I think, uh, Martin, let's start with you because this is a passion of yours, like efficiency and that. Yeah. The two worlds, the efficient were effective. Right? Exactly. Seeing, I'm, I was trying to not be so negative, but I will 
take some a little bit of time to <laughs> to go into that. What you usually see when there is some kind of recession is that it's not only a recession of money; it's often also a recession of mind because people get stressed about situation and. Uh, efficiency is a nice term for it. And making things faster is what they usually try to do. And, and that also means that they might be actually focusing too much on just building things yeah. and not really thinking about what they are building. I've been through three recessions now, I think, <laughs> in my work life. And I think that we always have seen the companies who come out on top are the ones who are daring to invest a little bit more on, for instance, the collaboration, the more uh, holistic thinking of things and not just focusing on uh, let's deliver. And when times are good, you can deliver without it costing you that much because people will buy it anyway. Uh, but actually implementing the principles that we talk about in the book is very useful for limiting, mitigating the risks of going bankrupt basically in uh, when you don't have too much to too much money in your bag. Uh, yeah. the, I can talk so much about this stuff and I've yeah. been thinking about it for the last couple of weeks. Sounds like, like there's a, sometimes there's another book coming out soon. Yeah, <laughs> perhaps, but the, so I'm going to start with a few stories, but the first thing I want to say when it comes to where we are right now in terms of recession is that the key thing to focus on is value, right? that you're creating value for your users and your customers to make sure that the products that you create or the services that you create is sustainable for the business, right? So product discovery is such an important aspect of that. And something I see, I've seen the last three, four months from customers or prospect customers is that there's this emphasis on building right now. And why is that the case? Because Martin said, you know, stakeholders are becoming stressed. And what happens when you're stressed, you regress and it can have the amygdala kick in the brain. And that means that the kind of agile way of thinking about leadership, that you're letting go of control and empowering the teams to figure out the right things to build. You go back to the previous leadership style that you've had, perhaps that you're the smartest person in the room. You are going to make the right decision. I kind of sense across the board that we're regressing in organizations because of this economic situation that, that we're facing right now, that leadership is becoming stressed and they're tightening the control in terms of what should be built. And as a result, discovery or empowering teams becomes, um, how should I phrase it? But becomes a cultural issue in companies. Do you agree with what I'm saying, Martin? Definitely. And it's not, it's not their fault <laughs> in some sense, these leaders and these people in general, uh, when you are stressed, you you try to do things as fast as possible because people have asked you to do things as fast as possible. And you would think that the most efficient way of working is to do it on your own, uh, mm. but it isn't actually, or this is where it boils down to what, when Marcus passed me the mic before, there's a difference between efficiency and effectiveness. So if we just want things, we want to go for efficiency, but if you want value, the actual value to dig up the gold and not just dig up any stone that we see, uh, then we want effectiveness. 
And to have effectiveness, we need to counterintuitively work as a team to uh, get all the, yeah, remove all the biases that we might have that says that I am, I can do this on my own and it will be a good product. Presenting these kinds of topics in a recession will always be really hard. Yeah, I can, I can see some of these things firsthand. And I think another thing I'm seeing, and I guess the economic context plays a big role in this, is that in a lot of organizations face this stress we've been talking about. So from the leaders, from the CPOs going down all the way to the people in the trenches, people actually doing the work, this cascading of stress means that the main metric people are looking at is clearly output focused, right? We're yes. just looking at are our teams producing. It's, it's like a productivity thing, right? You talk about value. And I think at the end of the day, the success of these people is usually measured around something to do with the revenue or profit or margin, something largely based on revenue, right? And I think I can see these two groups in these same organizations, these two factions being created, right? Some of these people really believe that you've got to focus on doing a few things, but a few things really well, and that are going to deliver value. And it's another faction looking at, listen, this is a crazy economic time. We're going to be judged by what we're doing, why or how, but what we're doing. So let's just throw a bunch of stuff out there and see what sticks. One of the big challenges I can see in, in discovery, I feel like there was this pendulum effect, right? There was this movement. So for a long time in the craft, in the field of product management, not a lot of people talked about discovery, right? I would say it started becoming a thing in the last three years. So people were really focused around agile and shipping stuff. Let's ship quickly. Let's ship a lot. Let's ship it iteratively. And then discovery became this thing. People like Teresa Torres started talking about it. You guys, you're talking about it. Marty Kagan talks about it. It becomes a thing. So now the pendulum has gone all the way to the discovery side. And it feels to me that in some organizations, we've reached this point where a bunch of people are fed up. Do you know what I mean? They're not fed up because it's not the right thing to do. They're fed up because I think a lot of there's a lot of expectations on them to achieve something with discovery. Yes. One of the biggest challenges I see in the organization is that a lot of the leaders, and I'm not only talking about the product leaders, I'm talking about the revenue leaders, I'm talking about the engineering leaders, want to see how does the value of this thing you call discovery actually materialize. And so there's a bit of lack of faith there, but you could also recognize that some people need to have facts. They need to be presented with evidence, right? Mm -hmm. Big part of this is moving from discovery to delivery. And yes. that transition is not always easy. No. What has been your experience working through your consultancy gigs, building the book? What have been your experience of kind of evangelizing this in some of these organizations where there's a lot of expectation around delivery? And how do you basically reassure some of these leaders when you're talking about holistic product discovery? So let me tell you a story. <laughs> so this client of ours, four years ago, we started this journey. We worked with them for a year and a half. And number one thing that was right from the beginning is that the CPO and the CTO wanted to collaborate. They understood that they had a problem. And the problem that they had was that the products that they had in the market wasn't getting the traction that they wanted. And 
product and tech was decoupled from one another. And the way things flowed was that you had somebody high up the food chain coming up with an idea, giving that idea to a product manager, and the product manager kind of translates that and gives it over to an agile product owner. And the agile product owner creates a backlog of things to deliver. And then the developers pick up the baton and deliver. And then you have output features, right? And that didn't get any traction, that, that kind of way of working. And so we, we wanted to address that problem. And we gave them some simple recommendations. And the, the essence was that we wanted to bring people together to form empowered teams. We didn't call them empowered teams, but we, no, it, it's the concept of empowered teams, that it's a balanced team, cross-functional team that works together and does product discovery together, talks to customers on a regular basis. And so we coach, we started with one team, we coached, and then it was two teams and three teams, et cetera. And in the beginning, there was a lot of pushback from engineers, like meeting customers. What are you talking about? That's not my job. I want to code. <laughs> but for every month or so, there started to become more engagement in these teams by meeting customers. And then we transitioned and started talking to more and more teams across the organization. And then we met one of the engineers maybe nine months after we started working with them in the cafeteria. And the engineer lit up and said, hey, <laughs> and, and started talking about the transition that this team has had gone through that, yeah, we were talking to customers and we totally understand that the product that we built is not addressing their problems, but we're working on fixing that. And uh, this epiphany, wow, we're going in the right direction. We're fixing things together as a team. And then I think it was a year after we, we talked to the CPO and the CPO was saying, oh, uh, this product, it's getting a lot of traction. It's selling. Uh, stakeholders are very happy. But in, what's important to talk through regarding the story is that it took a year and a half, two years until we reached that point. The CPO being really happy <laughs> with the business results. So it takes time for this transition to happen. It's not just about attending a product discovery training or reading the, the empowered book. It, it, you need as a leader, if you want this transition, this change to happen, which leads to positive business results, you need to, to understand that it takes time and you need to let go and trust the teams. And that is, especially in this economic context, it's hard for a leader to do that. But I hope that story adds some some insight to to where we are oh definitely does thanks for sharing by the way i think you know there's especially evolving in this field sometimes i can see that there are operators who are working in companies we talked about good product and bad product earlier on some people evolving in environments that are not necessarily doing all the right stuff and sometimes there's this disbelief like does it exist? Is there a company somewhere that does product well? And it's good for these people to hear stories where they can actually see that in some companies out there for real, some of this stuff is being done in the right way. And yeah. teams are actually collaborating. People are missionaries, not mercenaries. People are not territorial about the work they're doing, but it's all about, like you mentioned multiple times in this episode, coming together. At the end of the day, it's- Amen. It's about people, right? People yes. build products. It's all about people, not so much about technology. I keep reminding people about this. 
Listen, guys, it was great having you on the show. I had great fun having this conversation, especially because we are peers of the same group trying to move the industry in the right direction. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, this is the my favorite segment of this show. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. Some of them are a bit random. So the first thing I will ask is from each of you, what have been some of the most helpful resources you've used in your career that have helped you accelerate your career? So it could be like a book that you read or something you watched, like any anything content-wise that you've consumed at some point that was really a bit of a flipping moment for you. The idea is for us to share some of this with the wider community so they can have a look and maybe you'll have the same effect on their careers. Who wants to start? I can start, I think. And I'm going to be vague maybe in this because I think what have propelled my career the most is that I've been picking up on a subject and then either talking to people about it. I've been teaching people about it. I've been writing about it, obviously, both blog-wise and book-wise, and then getting the feedback from that or just understanding the topic better by, by expressing it to other people in different ways. That has been my key thing that has made me better and better, I think, or at least in my head, things like that. So it's not the specific content, but more the practice. Methods. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, it makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. Marcus? I mean, I started my career as a UX designer 15, what is it? Almost, no, not 20 years ago, but 15 years ago. And one of the first books I read that was important to me because it opened my kind of thinking in terms of that craft was Don't Make Me Think by Steve Krupp. Right? And it might not be super relevant anymore, but it was extremely relevant to me at the time. And what was really profound in that book is that there's another person using your stuff. <laughs> you need to empathize with that person so they don't think when they use an interface. And just that empathy, putting yourself in the shoes of another person, it is a common thread uh, when it comes to Martin and my work. It's to, to bridge the gap between human beings and to connect them, to collaborate. And that is still extremely relevant for me and Martin. I agree. I agree. Thank you. Next question. What advice would you give to your early career self? Marcus, 15 years ago, like if you had that person in front of you today, what would you tell them? What would I tell them? Oh, just embrace mistakes. Just go for it. Take risks. I've always taken some risk in my career, starting my own company, for instance, or jumping into another kind of field of work. And it's been uncomfortable. And also the risk of, I see so many people in organizations who don't put themselves out there, right? They are risk averse. We're not going to go through this change because I don't want to jeopardize my career or my career progression in this company. And uh, you end up not learning as much. So you need to take risks and embrace risks. That, that, that would be something that I would tell myself in the beginning. Thank you. Martin? Nice. I've been, I think it's actually listening to people understanding people's perspectives because I, I, I've had the tools from pretty early on. I, I trained user research 20 years ago, I think. What is it? 2023? Oh shit, it's for longer than that. And I've been pretty good at going into my user research persona 
and walking into the interview and really listening to people. Yeah. I felt that's a skill I have. And then when I left the room, I left my skill in there. So I haven't actually listened to people in a good way and empathized with people around me, mm. colleagues, leaders, family, everything. Uh, so I got that epiphany five, six, seven years ago, somewhere when I started realizing that, oh shit, that's the key skill that I would have wanted to give my younger self yeah. to actually listen to people. Brilliant. Thank you. Last question. Imagine you're stranded on a deserted island, right? You can have the following things. One, a book. Which book would you take? And two, an endless supply of a specific dish for all meals going forward. One dish. What would that dish be? So was it either or was it? So you've got, you can take these two, so you have two, two things, things, right? Two things. All right. You need, you, you've got to give me the book that you want to take with you and one dish, that dish, you're going to eat that same thing for all meals going forward. Yep. Okay. I can answer. I've started reading Hemingway and a bit of emphasis on starting reading Hemingway. <laughs> yeah. So uh, <laughs> quite a few books to read. Okay fascinated by his style of, of writing. And uh, so I would probably bring something by Hemingway. It sounds pretentious, but uh, yeah, that, that's what I'm trying to achieve. Free world, my friend. Yeah, yeah. And the second thing I would bring in terms of dish, I would bring quesadillas. It's the best dish. It's like taco <laughs> and cheese. That good stuff in my book. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Thank you. Martin? I'm trying to be more pretentious. I just don't know exactly what I would answer. I, I would like to bring a, a book that pushes me a little bit or always pushes me that, that gives. And I'm trying to remember the author's name. I've gotten this recommendation many times, but it just slips my mind. But something that will actually push me to continue developing. That's what I want. And maybe that's Hemingway. I don't know. I haven't even started. I, don't, I have no clue what that might be. On the food area, I'm less pretentious. I like potatoes. Yeah, potatoes. Shapes or forms. Just like my daughter. She loves potatoes. <laughs> so versatile, right? Seriously. Sure, yeah. This one thing, but you can do so many things with it. It's crazy. Bomb the down. Exactly. <clears throat> Mashed potatoes. Yep. Okay. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank um, you. I'm going to put all the details in the show notes. So the links to your websites, the book. The book is now out. People can buy it online. So I'll share all that, de all these details. Good luck with everything you guys are doing. I hope the book is a great success, even a greater success. And yeah, talk to you soon. Speak soon. Thanks for reminding Speak us. Soon. Thank you. This was fun. Yes. If you're hearing this, you've listened to this episode all the way. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform. Also, if you have a minute, please consider giving us a rating as it helps other listeners find the show. You can find all the episodes and resources on panache.io slash podcast. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot I-O slash podcast. Until next time. <laughs>